At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Good morning. We've not had a chance to meet. My name is Kirk McDonald. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the church. Uh, And this morning is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Well, uh, after a brief uh, break, we are back in the Minor Prophets. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the Minor Prophets, that is the last 12 books uh, in the Old Testament. It's sometimes that collection of books is sometimes called uh, the Book of the Twelve. Sadly, these are the books that we usually skip over uh, to get to the New Testament. Uh, But God has a life-changing message for us in the Minor Prophets. Amen. We believe all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for training, and for reproof. Amen. Uh, And so today we are going to be uh, in this book of Amos, one of the minor prophets. Again, they are minor, not in the sense that they are less important. Uh, They are minor in the sense that they are shorter books. And so uh, prophet Isaiah, 66 chapters. Ezekiel has 48 chapters, uh, where the book of Jonah has four chapters. Obadiah has one chapter. And so it's not that they are minor in the sense that they are less important. They are minor in the sense uh, that they are shorter. And so uh, here is my task. Let me just lay out what I would like to do uh, this morning for us. One, uh, I want to look at the context. I want to ask the question, who is Amos uh, and what's going on in Israel during the time when he is prophesying? The next thing that I would like to do is look at the entire book. Okay, We're going to fly over all nine chapters and get a sense of what's happening in the book as a whole. Thirdly, we're going to take a zoom lens and drop into chapter 4 and a part of chapter 5 and and, and essentially exegete that particular text. So that's where I want to go. Uh, That's what I want to do this morning. Are y'all with me today? Now, just curiosity, who has ever heard a sermon on the book of Amos? Well, then this is going to be the best sermon you've ever heard on the book of Amos, right? Who can, anybody can quote a verse out of Amos, okay? So uh, this is going to be good for all of us this morning to get into this book and discover who is this prophet Amos, what does he have to say, what was happening in the lives of the people of Israel, and what does that mean for us today, and how is Christ glorified and magnified in the book of Amos? So that is our task this morning. Let's go ahead and dive in today. Who is Amos? Look at Amos chapter 1, verse 1. Let me just say this. Uh, I know many of you have your Bible app out. That is great. It's got the notes in it, all that sort of thing, Uh, but I'm going like, all over the place in Amos. And so if you have a paper copy, that's going to be helpful to you flipping back and forth. Uh, just, Just fair warning. Amos 1, it says, the word of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So Amos was a prophet from Tekoa. Tekoa is a village about six miles south of Bethlehem in Judah. Okay, so uh, although Amos is from Judah, meaning the southern kingdom, if you remember at this time that they have divided into two kingdoms. Israel has separated into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom uh, and the southern kingdom. And so Amos is from the southern kingdom in Judah, yet he is called to minister to or to prophesy to the northern kingdom kingdom. He lives around the 8th century BC, meaning that he had some contemporaries that we know. So while Amos is prophesying, so is Hosea. Remember, we studied the book of Hosea. Uh, In addition, while he is prophesying, while Amos is prophesying to the northern kingdom, uh, there's this guy Jonah off in Nineveh yelling at those people to repent. In addition, there is uh, the great prophet Isaiah, uh, who is prophesying about the man of sorrows who takes on our transgressions. So he's prophesying during the time when all of those men are prophesying as well. Well, What is his occupation? Well, it says the word of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So he is a 
He's a simple shepherd. And, and uh, again, this village of uh, Tekoa was on the high ground. There's lots of pasture land there. And so lots of shepherds were, were kind of around. Just listen to Amos 7, uh, verse 14. Amos 7, verse 14. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore Figs. Now, what we learn about Amos is that his dad was not a prophet, so this, this mantle or office of prophet was not passed on to Amos. Uh, th- this is a dude who, I mean, this is a country boy, right? He, this is a country boy with dirt under his fingernails. He's a shepherd, he's a herdsman, and, and he's a fig farmer. That's, that's this guy. And so what he is going to be called to do then, this country boy from the south is going to go to the elite wealthy of northern Israel and prophesy to them destruction. Now, how much do you think they're going to like that sermon? <laughs> well, not very much, but that is, that is who this man is. He, is. he is a country boy, a farmer, a blue-collar guy with calluses on his hands. What was the state of Israel at this time? Well, like I previously said, they're kind of in a, in a, in a position of civil war to where they have divided into two kingdoms. Uh, ten of the tribes went up to the north with King Jeroboam. The other two tribes went down south, that uh, be the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin uh, with King Uzziah. And so they are a divided kingdom. But while they are a divided kingdom into two separate locations, they're politically very stable and they are very, very prosperous. The military is looking good. The borders are secure. Trade is going well. And this is two kingdoms that are fat and happy and wealthy and comfortable and everything is going well. I'm going to flip over to Amos 6. Amos 6, I'm going to read 4 through 6. Just listen to what Amos has to say to them. And this is showing their wealth and their opulence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory. Now, some of y'all got some fancy beds, but none of y'all got a bed of ivory. He says, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch out themselves on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sounds of a harp like David invented for themselves instrument of music. Listen to this, who drink wine in bowls. Now, some of y'all drink wine out of a box. What, what, they're, They're drinking wine out of bowls. This is kind of just showing who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with fine oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph, meaning the house of Joseph, meaning the line and lineage of the people of Joseph, meaning Israel. So there they are, they're in their beds of ivory, laying around on their couches, drinking wine, playing guitar, while doom and destruction and judgment is upon them. This is what's happening in Israel. In this book, one more thing to note from the introduction uh, was this strange last verse, or last section in, in verse one. It says it was two years before the earthquake. So, so he's one. This is kind of setting the scene for what Amos is having to say: destruction, earthquake, fire. Like th- these are the themes and the motifs from the book of Amos. We're not exactly sure, like I said, we know it's the 8th century, but we're not exactly sure when uh, this is taking place, but apparently it was two years before this earthquake that everybody knew this earthquake that he was talking about. This was a big, massive earthquake with lots of destruction. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the commentators talk about the archaeology uh, of, of this time period, and, and they, the archaeologists have actually gone back to this particular area and studied and found evidence of a massive earthquake during this particular time. Now let's do this, church family. I want to outline the entire book. I've broken it down into basically seven parts. And so I want us to look, go through just part by part, piece by piece, and look at uh, these kind of seven parts or seven sections in the book of Amos. Can we do that, church family? They're going to come up on the screen first. Number one, Amos 1 through 1, 2. Amos introduces himself and makes his first proclamation. Did you see that first proclamation in verse 2? It says, the Lord roars from Zion. Now, again, remember, this is a a shepherd. If anyone knew the danger of a lion, it is this shepherd from Tekoa. Now, I I know we sing the song, you know, God's not dead. He's surely alive. He's what? Living on the inside, roaring like a lion, and we are just victoriously singing that song. It's a great song. Love it. That's not this kind of roar. 
this kind of roar is the type of roar that should incite fear in us. Because this roaring lion is not the lion that is there to protect them from their enemies. This is the roaring lion that is coming to consume them. So in Amos 1, 1 through 2, Amos introduces himself and makes his first proclamation, this terrifying roar of a lion. Second, Amos 1, 3 through 2, 3, Amos declares judgment on six surrounding foreign nations. They're surrounded by all these nations. That they're, they're, you know, wealthy, healthy, happy, prosperous, but there's these surrounding nations around them, and Amos declares God's judgment on those nations. Now, at this point, at this point in the sermon, they like that. The, the people of the northern kingdom, they are excited about God's judgment coming on those people. Those people, oh, God's coming to destroy, God's going to get them? Yes and amen, Amos. Come on, preach it, son. Preach that sermon. We want to we hear about God's coming destruction on these other nations. They, they love that. Now, there's this refrain that happens all throughout uh, that section. Just look at verse 3. It says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Uh, he repeats that time and time again. It's, it's all throughout. For three transgressions and for four, I'm going to send my judgment on Gaza. For three transgressions and for four, I'm going to send my judgment on Damascus. For three transgressions. So what in the world is he saying? Here's essentially what he's saying. Three strikes and you're out. And these guys got four, is what he's saying. That, that's the refrain coming through there. So that, that is what he is, is getting at. Let's look at the third part of the third piece. Amos 2, 4 through 5, Amos declares judgment on Judah. Remember, two kingdoms. Kingdom in the north is Israel. Kingdom in the south is Judah. He's, he's ministering to or giving this prophecy to the northern kingdom, and he's saying that God is going to judge and punish Judah. Now, that, for them, the northern kingdom folks might start to get a little squirmy. While, while they were really happy that God was you know, going to judge all these other nations for all their terrible evil deeds, now Amos is saying he's going to judge Judah, their, their neighbor to the south, who again is like them. They're from the same line and lineage. They're, they're Israelite people. They're supposed to worship the same God, but, but that's, that's them down there in the south. You know, I mean, if God's going to judge them, that's fine. Now, again, a couple things to notice from this section. All of the people, all these, these six nations and then also Judah, all of them get fire from heaven, and it destroys their strongholds. Look at ver chapter 1, verse 7. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall destroy their strongholds. How about Amos 1, verse 12? So I will send fire upon Teman, and it will devour their strongholds. This is the refrain that keeps coming. Or how about chapter 2, verse 5, what comes upon Judah? So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. This is this constant refrain of, uh, for three sins and for four, I'm going to come, I'm going to judge them, I'm bringing fire from heaven, it's going to destroy their strongholds. The, the whole idea behind this is that they are dependent upon themselves. They are not dependent on God for his love and his mercy and his protection and his guidance. They are dependent on themselves because they've got everything they need. You know, I mean, they, they got, you know, two cars in the garage, they got, you know, TVs and every room. They got Netflix. Their refrigerator is full of food. Everything is fine. What, what do they need God for? What do they need the protection of God? What do they need the sovereignty of God for? They have themselves to depend on. And God says, I'm coming with fire and I'm going to destroy your strongholds to show you how truly dependent on me you really are. It's a terrifying prophecy. In addition, he repeats this, I will not revoke the punishment. Again, look at verse Three again, for three transgressions of Damascus, for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Or how about uh, one, six? Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Meaning that God has made up his mind. I'm not changing my mind on this deal. I I've given you all the chances. My judgment is coming. I will not revoke 
the punishment. This is a refrain that continues to come. And so thus far, from the beginning of chapter 1, on through chapter 2, down through chapter uh, 2, verse 5, everything has been the other nations, and then it was Judah. But church family, all of that was just a buildup to show where the real judgment is coming. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down again. The, fir- the fourth section Fourth section is this, Amos 2, 6 through 16. Amos declares judgment on Israel, the northern kingdom. This is where they really don't like the sermon. Started out good, preacher. Started out good. We're talking about them over there, those other nations. You made us a little uncomfortable when you started talking about Judah, and now you're pointing the finger at us? Who do you think you are, Amos? But this is what Amos has to say. All those nations were really just setting the stage for the harshest judgment that was to come, and it is directed to Israel. It's directed to Israel. For three, look, look at verse 6 and 7. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous into the dust, the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Listen to this, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. What is Amos calling them out for? Well, two things. First, he's calling them out for injustice. He's calling them out for injustice. Church family, I I want you to hear this from me. When we talk about justice, when we talk about social justice, I'm connecting that speaks of a God to any particular political party. The, The Bible speaks of a God who loves justice. And so we must love justice too, despite what political persuasion you might be, or, or, or despite what, what area that this is calling you to uh, that, that makes us uncomfortable to say, oh, well, well, you need to be on this camp or this camp. Or, no, no, I'm on Team Bible, which is about justice. And so he's calling them out for social injustice. They're, they're trampling those who are poor, those who are needy, those who are outcasts. In addition, he's calling them out for their hypocrisy. They're claiming to be the people of God. We're Israel. We're God's chosen people. Yet, did you see what what it was talking about? The the man and his father. They are engaging in temple prostitution in the temple in Bethel. In addition, they are, did you see, it said that uh, it was talking about they're taking these garments on pledge. If you borrow money, if you needed to borrow money, what you would do is you would give that person your cloak. You would borrow money, and, and kind of as collateral, you would give them your cloak, and, and then at the end of the day, what's supposed to happen is you repay them, and you give that person back their cloak, but they're not giving the cloak back. They're, they're laying around uh, with temple prostitution on these cloaks that they've gotten from poor people. This is what's happening in the temple. In addition to them drinking wine and being drunk in, in the temple, this is what he is calling out Israel for. Okay, so that's the first two chapters. Pretty, I mean, not, not a lot of sunshine here, guys. Not a lot of hand-holding and, and sandwiches going on here. This is, li- listen, seriously, this is a heavy book. I- I've been studying this book for, for weeks now, reading it over and over again. This is a, this is a heavy book. This is not probably the, the text you want to go to when, it's, when the kids are asking you to read Bible stories in bed at night. This is this is not the book that you want to go to. And so the, the, the first two chapters are, I mean, just an indictment on the nations, and not only on the nations, but on Israel, the southern and the northern kingdom, about their injustice and their hypocrisy. Fifth section, Amos 3, 1 through six fourteen. Amos gives us prophetic words and warnings. He gives us prophetic words and warnings. Look at the beginning of chapter 3. Listen to this. He says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken. Or how about the beginning line of chapter 4? Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. We'll come back to that. He calls the women of Israel cows. Uh, how, about, how about chapter 5, the, the very beginning part? He says, hear this word that I have taken up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. So in, th- in that section, 3, 4, and 5, he's giving them 
prophetic words, prophetic words from the Lord. In addition to these prophetic words, he's also giving them warnings. Look at 5.18, Amos 5.18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Or look at 6.1. Woe to those who are in ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria. He's giving them words. Hear this from the Lord. God is saying this. God is speaking to you. God is rebuking you. God is calling you out. And in addition, he's saying, you've been warned. Woe to you. Be wa- there's Warning. Stop what you're doing, is what he is saying in those, in those sections. It, it, again, this is, this is a really terrifying book. He, he is telling them that judgment is, is coming. Just look at chapter 3, verse 12. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. It says this, thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with a corner at what he says and a part of a bed. Do you get what he's saying there? Okay, so let me, let me just paint the picture this way. On a scale of 1 to 10, how did this rescue operation go? If the shepherd is trying to rescue the lamb from the mouth of a lion, and all he gets is a leg and an ear, how'd that rescue go? On a scale of 1 to 10, like negative 5, right? 10 being the best. We're, we're at about a negative 5 on the rescue operation of the lamb from the lion. What what he's saying here is judgment is coming and I'm not going to rescue you. Your rescue is going to look like all that's left is a leg and an ear. It's pretty, pretty powerful and terrifying types of words and warnings that Amos is giving. The sixth section, the sixth part of this book, Amos 7, 1 through 9, 10, God shows Amos... Five visions, five visions in those sections. The first vision is this, locusts. Now, now we learned uh, so, you know, a whole bunch about, about locusts, didn't we, back when we were in Joel. Uh, and so are locusts like, is this a good sign or bad? Definitely bad, okay? The second vision is this, fire. Locusts. And fire. This is not a fire that you cook your food with. This is not a fire that's going to warm your house. This is a fire that's coming to destroy you. So locusts, fire, uh, third vision is a plumb line. Okay, plumb line. Maybe, maybe God is going to build them up and use a plumb line. No, 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 no. That's not the vision at all. The, the vision of the plumb line for Amos, he, he is showing Israel you ain't straight. You're not square. You're not plumb. You're not level. That's the whole point of showing them the plumb line. The fourth, how about this one? The fourth vision is a basket of summer fruit. Oh, finally, something pleasant and nice, a basket of summer fruit. I mean, just let's go to chapter eight. It says, this is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. Amazing. So nice except for the basket. Matter of fact, just let your eyes scroll down to those that they are ripe for judgment. As a matter of fact, just let your eyes scroll down to 8 uh, verse 3. The song of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Okay, how about the fifth and final vision in this section, is there any light? Is there any gospel at all in, in the book of Amos? So the fifth and final vision. So we had a locust, a fire, a plumb line, a basket of summer fruit, and then f- lastly, fifthly, the Lord beside the altar. That's, yes, finally. The Lord, I'm in verse one. I, the Lord is here. Look at chapter nine. I saw the Lord, I'm in verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Finally, the, the Lord is here to rescue. And he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them upon the heads of the people who are left. I will kill with the sword. So, so no, that's, 
<laughs> we, we have not seen any light. We have not seen any hope. All the way through this section, all the way up until chapter 9, uh, it, is, it is not looking good, church family, for the nation of Israel. We are, we are desperate for light. We are desperate for hope. We are desperate for some sort of gospel because we've just gone nine chapters and 146 verses and we have gotten, I mean, no good news at all. Go read it for yourself. It is dark. It's grim, locust, fire, destruction until we get to the last seventh and final section. Amos 9, 11 through 15. Help me today, somebody. Amos prophesies about the future restoration of Israel. The future restoration of Israel. Look at Amos 9, verse 14. I will restore, yes, yes, and amen, verse 14 in chapter 9. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine, and they shall make gardens and eat the fruit. This is where we begin to see, I mean, the, just a, the, the book of Amos is a really long, dark tunnel, and, and these last five verses are essentially the little light at the end of the tunnel. No, the light at the end of the tunnel is not a train coming to run us over. The light at the end of the tunnel here is Amos sees a vision of the future, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem, restore, and rescue. That's what Amos, that's what Amos sees and so, church family, when you think that God is done with you, he ain't done with you. When, when it seems like you're in the tunnel, the long, dark tunnel, God, why have you done this? Why am I here? What in the world is going on? God has restoration in store for you, church family. Okay, so that's the whole book. So, so many of us haven't heard a study on Amos. We just, we just went through all nine chapters. What I want to do now is get out our Zoom lens. Y'all bring your Zoom lens today? Get out your Zoom lens and let's go back to chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at kind of the central message uh, of the book of Amos and, and what God has to say to us in the book of Amos. Chapter 4, Amos chapter 4, verse 1 <clears throat> says this. Hear this word. Let's stop right there. Y'all know I want to stop right there. He said, declares the Lord, hear this word. This book is filled with thus says the Lord, declares the Lord. Hear this word time after time, chapter after chapter, verse after verse. He is saying, hear this word of the Lord. Listen, the God is speaking to you. Thus says the Lord. Now, the reason that I want to point that out is lest we think that we are owed the word of God. We are not owed the word of God, church family. We, God has shown us everything that we need to know in his creation. By creating the world and the universe, he has shown us who he is. And we, he has shown us who, what he is about. And, and actually, he's shown us who we are through the creation. And so he does not owe us his word, yet it is a grace of God that he gives us his word. What, what happens is we are running away from God, living our own life, doing our own thing, and God gets in our way. Help me today. He gets in our way with his word. He blocks our path. He sets up roadblocks so that we don't keep going far away from him. He interrupts us with his word. We are not owed his word, but by his grace, he gives us his word. And he is good. He is good to do so. The people of Israel were living their best life, right? going to school, going to work, hanging out with friends on the weekends, going to the temple, worshiping their false god, drinking wine, feasting, having the time of their lives. If you would have asked the people of Israel, how's it going? They would have said, fantastic, right? Never, we have never been better. The problem is, the problem is this, things were so good and comfortable and secure, they could not imagine that they would ever lose it all, which gave them a false sense that they did not need the one true God. I want to ask you today, church family, is there a deep and abiding dependence on God in your life? Is there a deep and abiding dependence on God in your life? Let me just, I'll say this. If your life is marked by prayerlessness, you do not have a deep dependence on God. If your life is marked by uh, a dusty Bible and, and, a, and a, a Bible app that gets little screen time, you do not have a deep dependence on God. 
If your life is marked by doing your own thing and going your own way and not being deeply connected with a local church where people know you and you know them, you are not deeply dependent on God. Now let's say those things in the reverse. A person who is crushed and on their knees calling out to God day by day for his protection and his provision, that is the man or woman who is dependent on God. The person who is hungry for the word and knows that the life that God has for us is in here. It's right here, church family. This tells us about Jesus. It tells us about the life that he wants to give us and the life that he wants us to have, which is rich and full of joy. It also has suffering in it. But he says that you will be resurrected with me provided you suffer with me. And so the person that is going to the word is deeply dependent on God. The person who, who is entrenched in the church body and the fellowship of the believers, the person who knows people in the church and is known by them and doesn't just put on the happy Sunday face, but the person that is known by other people and knows other people, that person is deeply dependent on God. You see, the, these people were far, far from God. And so here's what I want us to see if you're taking notes. God interrupts us with love through the preaching of his word. I'm using this word interrupts very, very specifically. He interrupt, God interrupts us with love. I've got three interruptions that we're going to see uh, in this, this particular section of text. Because I, I want to use this because I want us to see that God does put stumbling blocks in our way. No, not that we should ever stumble into sin, but that we should stumble away from it and towards him. God puts roadblocks in our lives. He intentionally interrupts us because of the orientation of God's heart and our orientation away from him. That's what I want us to see. Much like the people of Israel going their own way, doing their own thing in comfort and ease. Not, they're not, they are not seeking after him. What had to happen is God had to interrupt them. And so he interrupts them. And how does he interrupt them? In their lying on their ivory beds and hanging out on the couch and watching Netflix and drinking wine. And he interrupts them by sending Amos. He interrupts them by sending a prophet. He interrupts them with his word is how he tries to awake them out of their slumber. What's so interesting about Amos is Amos didn't choose alone. Amos was called by God. So, so God could have left Israel alone. But God called Amos to go give them his words. Uh, I know we're in chapter 4, but I told you we're going to jump around. Go to chapter 7. Chapter 7 uh, says this, And Amaziah said to Amos, Now, Amaziah is uh, the priest there at the temple in Bethel where Amos is ministering. Listen to this. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah. He's telling him, go back home. Flee away to the land of Judah, eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the temple of the kingdom. Listen to what Amos says. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people of Israel. Now, therefore, Hear the word of the Lord. He could have left them alone. He could have left them in their ignorance. L listen, this is the tragedy of what happens to the people of Israel after Amos prophesies their destruction because he is a true prophet. They are destroyed. The Assyrians come in and destroy them. And so Amos uh, is there prophesying to them. God is trying to interrupt them from their disobedience. God, I'm, I am praying this morning that God would interrupt you in your disobedience. Listen, I, I never promise to preach good sermons. I mean, I do my best, y'all. You know? But what I do promise to do is allow this word to interrupt me so that I might come here Sunday by Sunday and interrupt you. I'm hoping that that's what God does with and through his word. Back to chapter 4. Back to chapter 4. I'm running out of time, but y'all don't care. I'm preaching long today. Sorry, not sorry. Here we go. Here's what he says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. Bashan is this really fertile place 
uh, there and they would graze their herds there because there was lots of plentiful grass and the cows would get fat. And so apparently Amos cares nothing about cancel culture because he calls them fat cows. Now, his point has nothing to do with their physical bodies, church family. The point has to do nothing with their physical bodies, but the state of their spiritual hearts. There they are, I mean, totally dependent on themselves, not caring about the Lord. They're laying on their couches and yelling, honey, bring me another white claw. You know, that's, that's what's going on with, the, with these women. They are laying around, getting their husband to bring them drinks. They're, this is the state. There, there is no intent, there's no dependence on the one true God. Not only that, they are oppressing the poor, and so he's calling them out. Let's continue reading in, in chapter 4. Who say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when you shall, take with, you shall be taken away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go throughout the breaches each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into Harmon, declares the Lord. He's being like really ironic here. L listen to what he says. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, with, uh, which is leaven, and proclaim freewill offerings and publish them so that you love to do, O people of Israel. What's so terrifying, again, is that these people are just going their own way, doing their own thing, and they have no idea that destruction is right around the corner. Did you see, it said that they were going to take them away with hooks, even fish hooks. History tells us that the Assyrian army was so brutal. I mean, just a terrible, cruel army. After they would slaughter and kill and pillage and destroy everything, they would round up those who were left, they would bind their hands, church family, and would literally put fish hooks in their mouths and tie them together on fish hooks and lead them away from the battle. And so there they are, drinking giant bowls of wine in the temple, engaging in temple prostitution, depending on themselves, not looking to the Lord, thinking everything's fine. And he's saying, this is coming for you. Again, he's interrupting He's in a temple there in, in the north. He says to them, come to Bethel and transgress. Again, the, the temple there in, in the north. They had set up their own temple. They, they should have been going to Jerusalem uh, to worship, but, but instead they had set up their own temple in, in Bethel with foreign gods. So he interrupted them with the word of God to tell them that they were hypocrites. You claim to be people of God, yet you neglect the needy and you worship pagan gods. Let's look at 6 through 11. He says this, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. That's nice, right? Everybody, you brush your teeth this morning, you like clean teeth? Well, that's not what he's talking about at all. Look at what he says, and lack of bread. And all. He's saying I gave you clean teeth, meaning you didn't have, I didn't give you no chicken wings that get stuck up in there. I, didn't, I, I, I withheld not from you. In addition, he withholds bread. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you. Where you went three months to harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. Do you see this refrain? I struck you with mildew and blight, many gardens and your vineyards and fig trees and olive trees, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up in your nostrils. That Church family, that's the stench from the dead bodies is what he's referring to there. I carried away your horses. I mean, the stench of your camp go up in your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares 
the Lord, this, this refrain, this is what happened. I disciplined you and you didn't return. I disciplined you and you didn't return. I disciplined you and you didn't return. That, that's exactly what he's saying, church family. If you're taking notes, jot this down. God interrupts us with love through discipline. He interrupts us with love through the preaching of his word. He doesn't have to give us his word, yet he gives us his word. And, and, and he interrupts us through discipline. Church family, listen to this. When God disciplines us, he is treating us like a son or a daughter. Okay, that, that's exactly what he's doing. Now, here, here's my example. I don't discipline your kids. Now, I might get on to your kids. And listen, if mine are acting up, feel free to get on to them. But you don't discipline my kids because my kids belong to me. And I don't discipline your kids because your kids belong to you. Um, so when it comes time for that serious parental discipline, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? My, my mama used to carry a wooden spoon in her purse, son. She probably still does. <laughs> when it comes time for that serious spiritual discipline, that is what the parent does. That's the parent's role. That's the parent's job because that child belongs to that parent. In the same way as we receive discipline from the Lord, it shows, church family, that we belong to him. Isn't that a glorious grace to belong to the heavenly father? Much to leave us too much to leave us alone in our waywardness who loves us too much to leave us alone as we stray from him, who loves us too much to leave us in sin which would destroy us. He disciplines us and he chases us down with an unstoppable type of love. Hebrews 12, 6 says this, For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Let me just address a quick criticism and then I'll move on. I've heard this said time and time again about the Bible. I've debated with non-Christians about this and even debated with Christians about this who find this type of text very uncomfortable because it seems like the discipline of the Lord is far too harsh. I mean, did you, did you see some of the stuff in here where God is saying, this is how I disciplined you with blight and mildew and I mean, natural disaster and death and it, it Right? In our hearts, it's like, that's a bit much. Like maybe a little drought, that, that's okay. But this other stuff, like that's, that's, that's too far, God. If you're taking notes, when we declare the discipline of God as unjust, it shows how little we think of the holiness of God and the depths of our sin. God is so holy. He is so holy. And the depths of of our sin bring us down and destroy us. And so he comes to discipline us and how he disciplines is up to him. How dare we say he is unjust for the discipline that he brings? He is holy and we are not. In this next section that I'm gonna read, I want you to see these two phrases, the two phrases that I wanna point out. I'm gonna read chapter four, verse 12 through chapter 5, verse 6, and there are two phrases. The first phrase is prepare to meet your God. The second phrase is this, seek me and live. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to prepare, to, I will do this to you. Here it is in verse 12, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought. We don't tell God what we think. He's telling us what he thinks. Who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts is his name. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise as the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord of the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Remember the, the temple there in Bethel where they were engaging in pagan worship. Do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal. There was another 
temple there that they were worshiping at. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Verse 6 again. Seek the Lord and live. If you're taking notes, God interrupts us with love through a picture of the future. Did you see that picture of the future he's painting? He, he said, prepare to meet your God. Lift your eyes up of all of your wealth and comfort and ease. Lift your eyes up off of your, your full bank accounts and your full refrigerators. And, and lift your eyes up off of that and prepare to meet your God. He, he's pointing them to a future certainty. The future certainty, the Bible says, it is appointed to a man once to die, and then comes judgment. What he is calling them to is the sober reality that one day all of us will stand before God and give an account. Two times. Seek me, and then he gives them this glorious grace. Did you see the glorious grace there two times? Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. And so he is painting this picture of the future. And so church family, when you draw your last breath, you will meet your God. And everyone will bow the knee to Christ. And we will either confess Jesus as Lord in victory, or we will confess Jesus as Lord to our shame. And so he says, prepare to meet your God. Seek me and live. Some of you know this. Some of you don't, but a dear saint of this church went home to be with the Lord this week. Her name is Nancy Hensley. She and her husband planted this church with us. She was a founding member of this church. And I had the great privilege of being her pastor for 10 years. And today she's at home with the Lord. The even greater privilege is that she was my aunt for 37 years. Well, she was prepared to meet her God. And so tomorrow, church family, I will preach her funeral. And we will lay her body in the ground. But hear me on the authority of the word of God. She is alive. When the word says, seek me and live, my Aunt Nancy knows the fullness of Amos 5. Seek me and live. She sought the Lord with her life, and today she lives. Won't you do the same? Won't you do the same? Won't we lift our eyes up off of, of, of our comfort, of our ease, of our trinkets and toys, and look to God and cultivate a life that's dependent upon him. One quick note of application, and then I'm out of your hair. Here it is. Don't ignore the divine interruptions of the Lord. There are multiple areas to where we are away from the Lord do you see what I'm saying? There are multiple areas of our life to where we are wondering, where we, like the people of Israel, have not returned to the Lord. And I can guarantee you, if you will take some time this morning in prayerful consideration, you will see areas of your life where God is trying to interrupt you. Don't ignore that interruption. Allow the Lord to interrupt you and allow that interruption to bring you back to himself. That's a simple application from this book. Now, before, before we close, can we revisit chapter 9? Before we close, can we, can we go back and see that gospel light? I want to go back to chapter 9 before we close because there is so much gospel light at the end in this book that is full of locusts and fire and death and destruction and judgment and wrath. There is gospel light at the end of this very book. Look at this. It says, in the day 
I will, I'm in verse 11 in chapter 9. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. There was, there was a young virgin who was from the house of David who bore a son that was in the line and lineage of David. And though the booth or the house of David was being torn down, God the Father sent Jesus to build up the house of David. And how was this house or booth of David built up? Well, it was built up through the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so, so Amos says, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all, all the nations who are called by my name. There we are, church family. That's us right there, not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations that are called. And, and so wherever you are, if you have been called by God, this is talking about you, that you will be restored to all the nations, declare the Lord. Verse 13, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. What that means, the, the harvest is going to be so plentiful. It, it, it's going to be so, so abundant. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall overflow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on that land. Listen to this. And they shall never again be uprooted. He, he is speaking of a future forever kingdom that is apparently paradise where, where there is plentiful harvest and there, the, the mountains are dripping with sweet wine. I mean, what kind of place could Moses be envisioning, uh, uh, Amos be envisioning? What type of place could Amos be seeing? But he, uh, what he is seeing is that great vision of the last day when the Lord Jesus returns and he calls us home to him and he wipes away every tear from every eye and there is no more mourning, there is no no more shame, there is no more pain, and we are reunited with the ones who were there waiting for us. And how in the world does he do this? Well, <laughs> we are so grateful for this shepherd, this shepherd Amos, but church family, there is a greater shepherd who has come. He says, I am the good shepherd, and this good shepherd loves his sheep so much that he lays his life down for the shepherd so that he is able to say, seek me and you will live. Jesus can say that because he has given his life for yours. Seek him. Seek him that we may live. I'll close with this verse, John 10 11, I, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Church family, seek the Lord this morning so that you may live. Let's pray. Oh God, we're grateful for this somewhat terrifying book of Amos, this book that speaks of judgment and locusts and fire. But, but, gives us the gospel of grace, that we do not have to earn or merit our salvation. You say, seek you and we can live. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people dependent on you, not secure in our wealth, not secure in our comforts, not secure on our couches, watching television, drinking bowls of wine. But, God, we would be dependent on you through your word, through prayer, and with your people. Oh God, make this so among the people of Gospel Community Church. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.